Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. As many of the longtime listeners know, each week we discuss the Torah portion, known in Hebrew as the Parashah, that is being read and discussed in the synagogue throughout the Jewish world. This Torah portion is entitled Emor, and it begins in Leviticus 21.1 and continues through Leviticus 24.23. The word Emor says, speak to. And so God speaks to Moses and tells Moses that the laws specific to Aaron and all the priests will be discussed in this week's parashah. And the priests are to stay pure and holy. They are not to have contact with the dead nor profane the name of God. They are not to marry a divorced woman. And the laws of the priesthood continue. He must not let his hair grow wild, and he must not tear his garments in mourning. Um, He must not go out of the sanctuary. If the priest is to marry, he must marry a virgin. God says to Moses, instruct Aaron that if his offspring has a defect, he is not to come near the holy shrine to bring a food offering. Indeed, says the Torah portion, any person with a defect is not to come near the holy shrine. God continues to speak to Moses about the priesthood and says, Do not make a priestly offering during any state of uncleanliness. Do not profane my holy name, but let me be sanctified. I, God, make you holy. And then the Torah portion shifts gears. And God reminds Moses to say to the Israelites that these are my appointed times for coming together. Six days shall your work be done, and on the seventh day you must stop performing any creative work. Proclaim it a Sabbath of rest. It is the Sabbath of God in all of your dwelling places. The litany of Jewish holidays continues. On the first month, on the 14th day of the month, is a Passover to God. On the 15th of that month is the Festival of Unleavened Bread, and for seven days you shall eat only unleavened bread. On the first day you shall proclaim it holy and do no work. The seventh day shall also be holy and you shall do no work. And when you come to the promised land that I give you, you shall bring an omer, a portion of your first reaping to the priest who will offer to God. And after seven complete Sabbaths from the time of these offerings, counting 50 days, you shall make new offerings to God. This holiday of Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, counting 50 days from the second day of Passover. The text continues, on the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall have a day of atonement, 
known today as Yom Kippur. You shall fast. You must not do any creating work nor any activity on that day. This Holy Sabbath, this Day of Atonement, is an everlasting statute for your descendants. On the 15th day of the seventh month is the festival of huts, known today as Sukkot. Seven days shall you be dedicated to God. On the first and eighth day, you must not do any work. You shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of the tree of beauty, leaves of palm branches and myrtle branches and willows of the brook, and rejoice before your God. You shall live and do seven days in order that future generations may know that I made the Israelite people live in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. The Torah portion continues and ends by discussing that blasphemy is unacceptable and one who strikes the life of an animal is to pay for his life in place of life. If anyone does harm to a fellow as he has done, so shall it be done to him, fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. It concludes by suggesting you shall have one law for the citizen and the stranger of life, for I, the Lord, am your God. This is, as you can tell, a complicated and rich Torah portion, speaking about the priesthood for the holy sanctuary, and for the festivals that continue to this day. With me this morning to discuss the Torah portion is Rabbi Stephen Bob, who has served as Senior Rabbi of Congregation Eitz Chaim in Lombard, Illinois, since 1981. He is an author of the book entitled Go to Nineveh, Medieval Jewish Commentaries to the Book of Jonah, Translated and Explained, published by the Jewish Publication Society. Rabbi Bob is known as an excellent teacher and continues to study even though now he has retired and serves as Rabbi Emeritus. Rabbi Stephen Bob, Simcha Bob, welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm happy to be here. Well, it's a pleasure to speak with you about this very uh, complicated and rich Torah portion known as Amor. I think we're going to begin uh, speaking about Chapter 23, which speaks about the fixed times, the fixed times of the Lord, which are proclaimed as sacred occasions, and in particular, you wanted to speak about the festival of huts or booths um, that is observed in the 15th day of the seventh month. Is that correct? That is absolutely correct. Wonderful. So why don't you begin a conversation about the festival of Sukkot? When we establish festivals, we're, t we're interrupting the flow of time to say, certain days are special. Now, there's certain divisions in time that grow right out of nature. So <laughs> the distinction between day and night is clear. Um, 
we know that the days are getting longer and the nights are getting shorter. If I forget this, my dog will remind me that the sun has come up. The division of the, of the secular Western month does not have any indication in nature. I can't know that what day in the month of May it is by looking at anything around me. I can know that it's the general season of the spring by looking at the blooming flowers and such and the warming weather. But the Hebrew month follow the phases of the moon. So the new month in the Hebrew calendar begins with a new moon. So when the festival of Sukkot begins on the 15th day of the seventh month, it, be, it means that it's the full moon. Every, every festival of Sukkot is a full moon. And that would cannot... mean, if I can interrupt you for a minute to clarify oh, sure. for our listeners, <laughs> that would mean that a new Hebrew month would be noted by the absence of a moon or, or a new moon. A new uh, moon, right. And that the and middle the of the month would be noted by a full moon, as you've suggested. Right. So in the ancient days, the court sat in Jerusalem, and a witness would come and report that they had seen evidence of a new moon, and the court would declare a new month has begun. But for over 1,500 years, we have, based, we have depended upon calculated calendars rather than uh, testimony in a court, so that everybody has agreed on when the new moon will begin, and we can predict this club with a great deal of confidence, universal, complete confidence, when it will be a new moon. It's not a surprise. And so we can look at a printed calendar and know when the new moon will begin. Right. And for those who are listening um, in the Northern Hemisphere, um, there is a full moon uh, now in uh, Canada <laughs> and the Northern Hemisphere. <laughs> the full moon is, can even be seen here in Chicago. Right. <laughs> So there's other divisions of time that don't grow out of nature. So the best example is the seven-day week. Now, we know that the seven-day week comes from the creation story in the first chapter of the book of Genesis. And there the text describes God creating the world in seven days and resting on the seventh day. And... um, all of the Western world follows a seven-day week. Um, there's no question of what day of the week it is. Um, in these, this day of staying at home, we may get confused about day of the week, but there's something. We have a clock that reminds us what day of the week it is. The newspaper reminds me what day of the week it is. But there's nothing in nature that shows me what day of the week it is. This, these divisions are imposed upon the flow of time. And when a community establishes a festival, those days are imposed upon the flow of time. So that whether we're living in the United States or in Canada, there are certain days that everybody in the community knows is is a sacred moment or a secular national moment. So that it's the Queen's birthday or it's the 4th of July, agreed upon moment. And they interrupt the flow of time, as you suggest. 
Right, yes, yes, yes. So we know on this day, these are the things that we do. <laughs> For me, in my personal life, the opening day of the baseball season has always been a, been a major festival. Unfortunately, yes. this year we are uh, waiting for that to happen. Right. Yeah. So there's a there's a sports writer in Baltimore named Tom Boswell of Washington, who has a wonderful book called "Why Time Begins on Opening Day," <laughs> so that sports fans can measure the season based upon what is going on in the sports world. And as you said, the absence of those events confuses us. <laughs> right. Where the are those Stanley season. Cup playoffs? That's right. In Canada, one would expect the Stanley Cup playoffs to be beginning. Uh, in the National Basketball Association, the playoffs would be beginning. And for baseball fans, baseball would be starting. Uh, right. And they are moments that mark time in the life of individuals who use sports as markers of the season. Well, in the Torah, there are no sports. Well, you know, it's hard to imagine that our ancestors lived without sports. So maybe we can imagine that they had sports, they just didn't report them in the text. That's a perfect way to think about it. Yes, 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 yes. yes. Well, we know that Aaron had a staff, you know. Maybe you should imagine Aaron's staff resembling a hockey stick. Perfect. Or Moses is being a baseball bat. That's right, yes. We can imagine those things if we wish. So perfect. Let's talk about the festival. So here in chapter twenty three of Leviticus, there is a listing of the sacred time. And that in verse two the text tells us that these are the appointed seasons of the Holy One of God. And then there's a, let's say, a paragraph about each of the festivals. And it explains when the festivals come and um, a little bit about each of the festivals. The Bible and other places tells us more about some of these festivals. But this this chapter here in Leviticus is really the core listing of the holidays. So if we want to know what are the holidays listed in the Torah, this is the chapter we would go to. Now, I'm particularly drawn to what is mentioned in the section about um, about Sukkot and what is not mentioned in the section about Sukkot. That's so the, the section of Sukkot is um, found in... Um, Verse 23, correct? So we see in, in verse 23, let me turn my text to a little, so we're looking together at the, at the same text. Yeah, so in, in verse, um, starting in verse 23 is a section about Sukkot. And it tells us that we should do no manner of work on the first day, and that we should offer sacrifices. But that section on Sukkot, doesn't mention anything about actually dwelling in a sukkah, a booth. And it's a little odd that if you were to ask Jews today, what do we do on 
Sukkot, on the festival of booths. We build a booth. We build a sukkah. And here, there isn't a mention of that. And what happens is the text concludes the description of the holidays and then returns to tell us a little bit more about Sukkot. In verse 39, for those who are following in an English text, uh, so just to remind our listeners, the beginning of Sukkot's description simply says it's the 15th day. It will be called the Feast of Sukkot, the Feast of Booths. Uh, but the first day shall be a sacred occasion, and then nothing until the verse 39 word tell us a bit about the holiday observance. And right. you want to so continue many, at that point. Right. So many people who read this text carefully see the second part about Sukkot is that it seems to be tacked on, that it seems to... There's a, there's a doc, part of the document that lists all the holidays, and then there's an addendum. And here's some more about Sukkot. Um, that there was, that the holiday, that the festival of Sukkot developed over the time covered by the Hebrew Bible, that the festival of Sukkot didn't develop whole from the very beginning. So that when we look at the entire Hebrew Bible, we shouldn't imagine that it was all written all at the same time. And that when archaeologists create a dig, they pull back the layers of history and they find certain many, many layers of civilizations that occurred in a specific geographic spot. I think that with the Hebrew Bible, we can do the same thing and look at Certain layers were written in a certain period. Earlier layers were written in an earlier period. And I think that the text that we have today, we can see the theme between the earlier material and the later material. And so you're going to suggest for our listeners that to understand how Sukkot uh, evolved, we should turn to the book of Nehemiah. That's right. Now, I know that people are, tend to be not very familiar with Nehemiah. That in the Jewish community, we don't read Nehemiah all that much. And in the Christian community, Nehemiah is not read all that much either. That it, <laughs> we can imagine that Nehemiah has cobwebs on it. <laughs> it's part of the Bible that people don't open. Which is and one we of the remind our, and, and so perhaps you can remind our listeners um, who Nehemiah was and why the importance of his book to understanding okay, so, Jewish life. Right. So the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, they're often seen as one book, one long book. But the Bible divides them into Ezra and Nehemiah. And the, the book Hebrew text divides Nehemiah. them into two separate books, but right. scholars, as Rabbi Bob has suggested, see them as one book uh, discussing one, the same events from different perspectives. This is so. Yes, I would say that there's no. If we can think of a collection of short of linked short stories, <laughs> might be a good model. Okay, good. Sometimes you, 
you can read not you can read a novel, you can read short stories, and there's something in between that links short stories. Um, so Ezra Nehemiah described a period of return from the Babylonian exile. So you'll you'll recall that in 586 BCE, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army destroy the temple in Jerusalem and carry the people off the leadership of the people off into exile to Babylonia. And they remain there until the Persian Empire, led by Cyrus the Great, conquers the Babylonian Empire. And then at the beginning of the Book of Ezra, we're told that God moved Cyrus's heart so that Cyrus allowed the leadership of the people to return from exile in Babylonia back to Jerusalem. And the books of Ezra and Nehemiah describe this process. That's a whole other story for another time. Right. But the, the one part of it that I'm interested in today is in chapter 8 of the book of Nehemiah. There's a description of a grand public ceremony. There is Ezra and Nehemiah assemble all of the people, all of the people who have returned from exile, into a public space um, outside of the wall, just outside of the walls of Jerusalem. Um, they talk about a gate called the Water Gate. In today's Jerusalem, there isn't any place called the Water Gate. Most of the scholars think that they're talking about a place that we now call the Dung Gate. If you've been to the old city of Jerusalem, this is the gate where you enter the old city near the western wall, near the Temple Mount. So that here, not in the temple, but near the temple, they assemble the entire population, and Ezra reads from a Torah scroll. This is a hugely important moment in the development of the Bible. This is the first recorded public reading from the Torah, from the first five books of the Bible. Um, to my way of thinking, Judaism began then. The Judaism we know began with that moment of Ezra reading from the Torah. And, and reading it not to a gathering of priests, but to a public gathering. Everybody. And the text goes out, That's of, right. out of its way to tell us that everybody was there. Um, Men and women, young and old, That's right. children. On the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the teaching before the congregation, men and women, and all who could listen with understanding. He read <laughs> from it, uh, and for the men and women, notice both men and women together who could understand, the ears of the people were all given to the scroll of the teaching. Now, how do pretty, you... A connect this event to Sukkot? So, so, first of all, this is a grand event. I mean, this is, you know, everybody could understand it. So, you know, so I have grandchildren, so I, I can distinguish between a, a three-year-old and a five-year-old. But you know, right. maybe my three-year-old grandson, Jonah, can't understand it, but my five-year-old granddaughter, Kira, she could get it. So, they're all there. So they have a big public reading. And then, later in the same chapter... On the next day, they start reading what's in the text. They take the scroll and begin to read what's in the, what's in the text, and they, they're going to learn 
more about what's going on. So in verse 13 of that chapter, the chapter, it says they, they gather to see what's in the Torah. And then in verse 14, they read about commandments concerning Sukkot. Being found in the Torah, God had commanded the Israelites must dwell in booths during the festival of the seventh month, and that they must announce and proclaim throughout all of their towns and Jerusalem as follows, go out to the mountain and bring leafy branches of olive trees, pine trees, myrtles, and palms to make booths, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made themselves booths on their roofs in their courtyards, in the courtyards of the house of God, in the square of the water gate, and in the square of the Ephraim gate. The whole community that returned from the captivity made booths and dwelt in the booths. The Israelites had not done so from the days of Joshua to that day, and there was a very great rejoicing. Wonderful. So, fact, a surprise to everybody. Yeah. So the fact that they had that the people had not done this from the time of Joshua. So Joshua led the conquest of the land. So this means what the text in Nehemiah is saying is that during the time of the judges, during the time of the first temple, during none of that hundreds and hundreds of years had anyone built a sukkah. Um, so this so must have been a surprise to the Israelites returning from Babylon. Well, it's a surprise. It's something new. So that how, the Bible commentators don't like this. They have a hard time with this. How can it be that there's a new ritual here in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah? I think that it was indeed a new ritual. And it's my opinion that the part that we read in Leviticus was added to the Torah text at the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. Oh. To connect this behavior back to the Torah and use antiquity for authenticity. Right, exactly. <laughs> if it's older, it must be more true. Right. And, and we understand so that in... All religions, we want to associate our sacred text with some event of which we have assigned to uh, great importance. Um, the Gospels assign their existence to telling us the life of Jesus as if they are uh, firsthand reporting when they're written a hundred years later. And the Torah tells us about Sinai as if it was first-hand reporting. I think that's exactly right. I think that, so if we look at the earliest existing copies of the Gospels, they don't have names on them. And that the names that by which we now know the Gospels were assigned to those Gospels by the Church Fathers. And they imagine... example. Yeah, they didn't imagine that the Gospels were written by people we never heard of, but quite the opposite. They imagined that the Gospels were written by people who, as you said, were eyewitnesses to the facts described. Um, Rabbi, we're running out of time, so I wanted to oh. know if you wanted to make a last comment about Sukkot. Thank you, thank listeners. you, thank you, thank you. So the question is, the big question is, why did they start building the Sukkah 
at the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. So it's my opinion that the sukkah was actually, the ritual of building a sukkah was begun in, that it began in Babylonian exile. That in Babylonian exile, the exiles built a temporary booth each year to remind them of the temple in Jerusalem. That the temple in Jerusalem, the Solomon's temple, was originally dedicated on the festival of Sukkot, and that the, there's a connection between the festival of Sukkot and the temple. So when they were in exile, the temple had been destroyed, and they built a temporary, temporary structure each year to remind them of the temple in Jerusalem. And that, so that when they returned to Jerusalem, they didn't give up the ritual of building the sukkah, but they just infused it with new meaning. Excellent. So you've offered us a way to uh, understand the development of not only the Hebrew text, but the holiday cycle, which gives us an insight to how uh, Jewish tradition has evolved, even from the very beginning, from the authorship of Torah to uh, the experience of Torah. Uh, I want to thank you for joining with me today. My guest has been Rabbi Steve Bob. Uh, author of a book on Jonah and the Medieval Commentators, which is available through the Jewish Publication Society for Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. You can find a podcast of this morning's show on iTunes or on the chri.ca website. Shalom and have a good morning. Oh, 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 oh